Welcome to Knowing Christianity, and we're going to be jumping into Mark 8, verse 31, as we think about Jesus approaching the cross. In this passage, he predicts his death. He recognises that the cross is the will of God, that it's inevitable. It does not take him by surprise. It is not something which other people do to him, but something which he willingly fulfills in the will of God, laying down his life, not having his life taken from him. In Mark 8 verse 31, we have Jesus speaking to his disciples, saying this, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. As we consider this passage, and we consider it in a way where we're going to read it and learn it in, in perhaps a deeper level than we have done before or perhaps never done before, we come to understand that Jesus is taking us into a deeper level. That the first half of Mark was explaining who Jesus is. But now Jesus is taking us into the level where he will explain why he must die. And it's really important to understand who Jesus is before we understand why he must die. The reason for that is because only this person dying this death can save sinners. While many people died on the cross, the emphasis on this person, Jesus Christ, is necessary because it is only his death that can actually accomplish salvation. So it is absolutely necessary and Mark very simply breaks down his gospel into these two halves in many ways by explaining who Jesus is so that when we get to the part where we begin to understand why he must die, we can actually see what it means for him to die and what his accomplishment will actually mean for the men, women, boys and girls who live within this world to us who, as we listen to him speak. So we're not just considering the death of a person on a cross. We're considering the death of Christ on the cross. And therefore it is necessary that we understand who this Christ is. And therefore when we do, we're then able to fully appreciate what Jesus means and why it takes Peter at, by such a surprise when Christ says that he must die, that he is predicting his death. Well, in many ways, our love for this gospel, our love for God, grows proportionately, you might say, in understanding what he has done for us, that the more we understand the more we're able to love and show our love for God in thanks and praise to his name and for what he has done. Very similar to the woman uh, who anointed the feet of, joys, uh, of Jesus with her tears falling from her eyes, washing his feet and then drying his feet with her hair, taking Simon the Pharisee back Simon saying that if Jesus knew what type of woman this was, he wouldn't have allowed her to behave in that way towards him. 
but Jesus is drawing out the truth through a parable, which he gets Simon to admit that the one who has been forgiven much will love much. Simon doesn't see his sin. He sees her sin. But she sees her sin. And she expresses thankfulness that God has forgiven her sin, that Christ has forgiven her. And we have this wonderful picture of what her love for Jesus looks like in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Everyone is in need of forgiveness. And yet Simon doesn't see his sin. And so he doesn't see his need for forgiveness. But Jesus, in drawing our attention to the woman, allows us to see that our love for him will grow proportionate to how much we understand and see exactly what he has done for us. So in reading carefully, this isn't just an intellectual exercise, something that we can learn and make notes on, but rather this continues to change us at an emotional level, at an affectionate level, at a level where we want to praise God for what he has done in our life and in the lives of others. Now Mark has a particular way of arranging his gospel. He has a particular way of arranging the word of God so that he can draw out the points and the meanings that we are meant to understand. And he does this very simply and and one of the best ways of course is by dividing his gospel into two halves. First asking or answering the question, who is Jesus? And then in the second uh, half, addressing the question, why Jesus must die? And this just helps us to understand and appreciate what is being taught and why it is being taught. On another level, Mark begins by saying that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's how he opens. And it sounds very similar to the book of Genesis, where Genesis begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That right from the very beginning, Mark is trying to give us this impression that Jesus is the one who will bring in a new creation. That through Jesus, this corrupt world will be no longer corrupt, but God will bring in a new creation through the person of Jesus Christ. The people who are corrupt and sinful in this world will no longer be because Jesus will make them a new creation in him. So Mark has a wonderful way of using big pictures in many ways to draw out important points like new creation. And he does the same here when predicting his death. As we've said that this is the second half of Mark's two halves. In the first half he addresses the question who is Jesus and now he's moving in, this is the beginning of the second half, into predicting his death and therefore now we must come to understand why Jesus must die. Now, in coming to understand why Jesus must die, and this is a word that Jesus actually uses, the word must, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest. 
we need to understand why it is a non-negotiable. Now, at the turning point of Mark here, Jesus has just healed a man in two stages, not because he couldn't do it in one stage, but rather by doing it in two stages, he's making a very important point, which will become very apparent in the life of Peter, especially when Peter calls Jesus the Christ, but then doesn't understand why Jesus, who is the Christ, must suffer and die. Jesus has just healed this blind man in two stages. In the first stage, he asks the man what he can see, and the man replies, I can see men like trees walking. He touches him again, and the man can see clearly. The next thing we hear is Jesus turning to his disciples and asking them, who do people say that I am? And of course, there are many suggestions that are made, but then he turns the question on them. And he asked his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? Well, after a bit, Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, as they recognize Jesus is the Christ, Jesus then moves from them understanding who he is now into why he must die. But it's at this point that Peter doesn't understand. Peter is like the blind man. He sees that Jesus is the Christ, but he sees that Jesus is the Christ in the same way the man was healed first, seeing men like trees walking. He sees, but only partially. He sees, but not clearly. And in the same way the blind man needed a second touch from Jesus to in order to see clearly, again, this isn't a limitation on Jesus's part, but rather a point that Jesus is making, that what Peter needs is more revelation from Christ, that he needs more of Jesus to be able to appreciate and see and understand why Jesus must die. In other words, if we are going to understand why Jesus must die, it must come from him to us. It must come through his word and by his spirit into our lives and into our minds and into our hearts if we're going to appreciate why the Son of Man must suffer and die. Now, it's really important, as I said before, to understand why the Christ must die, why the Son of Man must die. And to put it simply, it is because that salvation can not be accomplished through any other person but this person. That if a person is going to have their sins forgiven, it can only be forgiven if this person, the Son of Man, the Christ, suffers and dies in our place. Now, as we get to the end of Mark, we begin to learn how that happens and and how it unfolds. But here, we come to this phrase, the Son of Man. And the Son of Man must suffer and die. Now, I want to address this word must because it's a non-negotiable. But I also want to address the Son of Man. It may not be a phrase that we're at all familiar with. If we have read through Mark, then we are more familiar with it than perhaps if we hadn't read through Mark before. If we've read the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, again, we're going to have a very good idea of what it means when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and die. In Mark, we learn that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2 verse 10. 
here we learn that the Son of Man must suffer and die and then be risen. Mark 8 verse 31. Later on in Mark, we learn that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Mark 10. And also that the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the Father with power. Mark chapter 14. Fulfilling Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who then is the Son of Man? Well, in the book of Daniel, we begin to understand that the Son of Man is the one who is the ruler of all, that he rules with all authority, that to him is given dominion, that to him is given glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that cannot be destroyed. And yet it is this Son of Man who must suffer and die. And yet when you read something like we have just read in the book of Daniel, it seems like he is the sort of person who can make other people suffer and die. And yet here we have him predicting his own suffering. That in the end, he is the one who will be judged, judged in our place. That in the end, he is the one who will suffer, not us. And yet he is the one with all rule and all power and authority. Someone that no one can match or do anything about who could take him on in any way. No one is strong enough. No one is powerful enough. No one could do anything to him. He's the type of person who could easily make other people suffer. And yet here he is saying that the Son of Man must suffer himself. And why? Because what we will begin to understand is the sinfulness of man and at the same time the mercy and grace of God in seeking and saving us through what he accomplishes in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. Now we come to the word must, and this word may take a little bit to understand. We understand it's an important word because it's put here, but it's important in many different ways, and this is what we must understand clearly. In the same way you can't break eggs to uh, without, you need to break eggs in order to make an omelette, we need to understand that if you want an omelette, then eggs have got to be broken. If you want to learn how to swim, then you're going to have to get in the water. They're non-negotiables. You're not going to be able to have an omelette without broken eggs. You're not going to be able to learn how to swim without water and getting in the water. Well, these non-negotiables are easy to understand. That they must happen in order for something else to happen. Imagine for a moment you're walking along a harbour wall and you notice that in the water... There is a child drowning, you know, uh, struggling to swim, going under several times. Must you jump in? Must you jump in? Well, that depends on what you want. The drowning child can't make you jump in, just like we can't make God save us. Even if we wanted God to do it, even if we were the child in the water wanting the passerby to jump in and save us, we can't make them. So what then causes the must? 
Well, go back to the illustration of the drowning child and you walking by. Do you want the child to drown? No. Do you want to save the child from drowning? Yes. Well, then you must jump in. It's a non-negotiable. If your will is to save, then this must happen. If your will is to save the person from drowning, then you must jump in and save him from drowning. Well, Jesus must suffer. Jesus must be rejected. Jesus must be killed. Jesus must rise. And why must he? Well, because it is the will of God to seek and to save the lost. It is the will of God expressed in the fact that he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me give you another example of how this word must works. When God rescued his people from Egypt, in Exodus 13 we read, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Why must God lead them another way? Well, because they would see war, because they would change their mind, because they would return to Egypt. If God did not lead them another way, they would see war, change their mind and return to Egypt. And God doesn't want that to happen to his people. And so with normal means, with ordinary means, he leads his people another way so as to avoid those things from happening. God stops them from happening by doing something else. He must lead them another way if he doesn't want them to see war or change their mind or return to Egypt. What we then see at the very heart of the word must is the will of God concerning the people of God. That if we're going to understand the word must here, that the Son of Man must, then we must understand it in the context of what is the will of God. Think also of John 4, that Jesus must go through Samaria. Well, he could have went another way, but remember God is seeking worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he meets the woman at the well, and in the end the whole town come out and believe in Jesus for themselves. That's the will of God. Think about those who want to be disciples and follow Jesus. Well, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. It's something that must happen. And so whenever we come across the word must, what we're actually coming across is really the will of God. When we see the will of God then in this word must as Jesus speaks, we understand it in the context of God so loving the world that he gave his son, and now his son must suffer and be rejected and be killed. That God in making peace, the Son of Man, must suffer, be rejected, be crucified. In reconciling and forgiving, the Son of Man must. And so when Peter says, no Lord, he's not understanding the work of God. He's failing to understand the will of God. He doesn't understand that the word must is a non-negotiable, that, that salvation cannot be accomplished any other way 
than this way. It's it's as if he's saying to Jesus, it doesn't need to happen this way. But the word must is indicating that it does need to happen this way. As we consider this word must, it's easy to understand it in the context of salvation. It's easy to understand that it's in the context of forgiveness and reconciliation. And here we have Jesus predicting his death. And it's necessary also to point out that though this is a must, Jesus is not taking this on without a willing spirit. That when a lamb is led to the slaughter, it doesn't have a will in order to obey. But Jesus lays down his life, his life is not taken from him. That when he obeys the Father, even to the point of death, even death on the cross, it is a willing obedience. That it pleases him to do the Father's will. That when we read in John 14 verse 31, he says that he goes to the cross to demonstrate to the world his love for the Father. That God the Father is demonstrating to the world his love for us and giving us the Son. And Jesus in John 14 verse 31 is explaining the cross in the context of I do this to demonstrate to the world how much I love the Father, that I love the Father. And so his willing obedience is on display that though this word is must, it doesn't take away this willingness, this love for the Father. What Jesus is expressing and explaining is the will and purposes of God which he willingly undertakes. Well, we should never be tempted then to sort of sit here and be indifferent to the rule of God, the rule of the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father with all authority and power. We should go away thinking about this a lot, not convincing ourselves that somehow this authority hasn't reached everyone. God rules over all people everywhere, whether they acknowledge it or not. And none of us can work out how important Jesus is by how many people build their life on him. It just doesn't work like that. Jesus is ruler regardless of whether or not his rule is acknowledged by anyone. So as we come to understand Jesus saying here that the Son of Man, the ruler of all, the one who has all authority and all power, must suffer and die, he must do it because of the will of God. It is the will of God to love, to rescue, to redeem, to forgive, to save. And the Son of Man does this willingly, to bring in a new creation, to make us a new creation. And this is something that Peter must understand, that this is something that must happen. So as we read through the rest of Mark, as Jesus has predicted his death, and as we will see him eventually die on the cross, we have this picture of one who has all power and authority, who could easily bring judgment down upon other people and make them suffer, but who in our place receives the judgment of God for our sin and suffers 
in our place. That's what the Son of Man must do in order to rescue, redeem and forgive us. And for this we praise our God in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening.